and if you have got a Bible handy, then Colossians chapter 2 would be a good place to open it. Uh, most of the verses will pop up on the screen for you to, to, to help you along. And I'm sure the people on the desk can put up uh, verses that I might have missed. <laughs> but let's pray as we open God's word together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us a living word that speaks to us. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be listening this morning. And Lord, that as we see in the pages of Scripture, these amazing truths of what you've done for us. And later, as we see this little mini sermon of, of a baptism, Lord, please speak to us and move our hearts that we might understand the truth of what you have done for us. For we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, baptism services are, are they're a wonderful opportunity for us all to think about what God has done for his people. The baptism itself is, is a picture, isn't it? It's kind of like a play act, if you will, which mimics what Jesus has accomplished for us when he went to the cross, that key event in history. On the most basic level, then, with baptism, it's a picture of, think about it, death. It's a picture of death, burial, and then resurrection. So it's death to sin. That is death to our former way of life. A nailing to the cross of what we used to be in slavery to sin. And it's burial as those things are done away with for good. They're dead and buried. Uh, and then it's resurrection as you come up out of the water, out of the grave, as it were renewed in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. And a wonderful summary verse, really, is found in Galatians chapter 2, uh, verse 20, where the Apostle Paul says this, if we pop it up on the screen. He says, listen, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's a brilliant little verse summing up baptism, isn't it? Everything about our salvation, about our being saved, has been achieved by Jesus Christ and not by ourselves. I mean, that's a key, important truth to understand, isn't it? And I'm sure that that will become very apparent when we hear Ryan's testimony later on in the service. But as we turn to those verses that we just read now uh, in Colossians, which we certainly cannot really do justice to this morning because I'm going to try and keep it short, I want us primarily to see in verses 11 to 15 another amazing summary of what Jesus Christ has done. First of all, what he's done for us, and then second of all, what he's done in us. Well, I hope you'll excuse me for working through this passage in a sort of slightly backwards uh, manner. I'm only doing this because I just want us to grasp a slightly different logical flow in, in what we've got here on the page. So first of all, we're going to look at what Christ has done for us. So if you look at your Bibles and verses 13 to 15 of Colossians chapter 2, these verses tell us about what Jesus has done about the two greatest problems that we have as human beings. And the first is the really great problem 
of our own sin. We sin every day, don't we? There's no denying it. Um, and, And there's actually no avoiding it, if you're honest with yourself. God has given us his rules to live by. He's done that actually written down in in the Bible, but he's also given us a conscience that bears witness to the same thing. And we largely just ignore those rules, don't we? Unless they seem advantageous to us. Have you noticed that? So we might not steal. You might be sitting there thinking, "I I don't steal, I'm not a thief. But perhaps we don't steal because we've got plenty. Because stealing would make us feel bad. It would give us a guilty conscience. Or, or for some people, we don't steal because we're just, just simply because we're scared of getting caught. I mean, that became really apparent, didn't it? Do you remember, the, was it the, the, the riots that we had around the country back in, was it 2011, 2012? Do you remember that on the news? Uh, and you found that there were, there were ordinary, decent citizens who, when there was an opportunity, passing a shop, and the, the windows of the shop had been broken, and everyone was rushing the store, people who otherwise would be completely law-abiding citizens just thought, oh, well, I could just go in and grab that iPhone, couldn't I? Because, you know, and suddenly the fear was gone. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? We might not commit adultery because we're, well, because we're ha- there's no advantage to us. We're happy with our spouse. As soon as we're not happy with our spouse, we can find ways to justify doing such things. We might not murder because we're frightened of the consequences again. But we are more comfortable with those sins, aren't we, that we consider to be small, little things that we do. You know, when, when talking to people, especially, you know, working with, with students on a university campus, I have found that the morality of the day seems to be, and they'll generally say this, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Uh, And, of course, a little caveat, as long as everybody involved wants to do it, well, then it's okay, really. But the moral code that we find in the Bible is very different to that. Whereas the morality of of our day can, can sort of shift and change according to people's general feelings... God's morality stands firm and unchanging. So we think that bending the truth is a little bit okay. Yeah, it's not as bad as a full-blown lie. Robbing a bank is wrong, but leaving work early, that's just a little thing, isn't it? It's another form of petty theft, actually, isn't it? But it doesn't seem to hurt anyone, and we can justify it because, you know, it's a faceless organisation. I guess it's a little bit like how people why people can justify, uh, you know, uh, benefit frauds and stuff like that. You know, I, I did um, home care work when I was uh, a student. I did it in London, and it was common practice. So this is where the council employs you to go to people's homes and to do an hour of tidying or cleaning or caring, caring for their homes. It's common practice that when somebody said they didn't need anything done that week, the person going to the door would just say, well, could you just sign me off for an hour then? And there it would go. And then they would hand in that timesheet. And all they'd been doing, really, was wandering around the town, having a cup of coffee and just relaxing for the day. We grade our, sk- our sin on a scale and we assume nobody's going to care about those little indiscretions that really don't hurt anyone. But Jesus had a very different view. He frequently corrected that sense of false confidence that we have in our own rightness, our own morality, 
Listen to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, one of his most famous sermons from Matthew 5. He said this, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Or later he says, You have heard it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders is subject to judgment, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. See what Jesus is doing there? He's tightening the screws, isn't he? I mean, have, and, and this is the reality with all these little sins in our lives that we excuse. And I wonder if you've ever had like a slow leak uh, in the plumbing in your house. Uh, I've had a few over the years, and I've dealt with other people's as well. Uh, one of those leaks where it's almost undiscernible and you don't know what's going on, but then you take up the carpet and the floor is flooded or the first thing you know about it, or the first thing the person knows about it, is when the roof, when the ceiling below collapses and, and it's just rubble everywhere and water is flooded. The water has accumulated. It has gathered drip by drip. And likewise with our sin. You might be plagued by the guilt of a big sin that you committed once upon a time. But actually, that's probably not the case for most of us. But most of us are accumulating with every passing year a great debt of sin, drip by drip. But look at what Christ has done in verse 13 of our passage this morning. Have a look. Verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us he took it away nailing it to the cross keep those words in front of you just for a second this is telling us jesus has paid our debt that accumulated debt if you've put your trust in christ all your sins are forgiven and what's more according to verse 14 there He's cancelled the written code. You know what that means? I think that means, it, it means something along the lines of this. He's removed the ability of those laws to build a guilty verdict against you. They can't build a guilty verdict against you anymore. How? Because all of those sins have been nailed to the cross in Christ. And I'd love to say more about that. But we don't have time. Not only has he paid the great debt of our sin, secondly, in this passage, we find that he has removed the, he has, uh, he has defeated the great enemy of our soul. So we have the one great problem of our sin, the second one, a great enemy of our soul. Paul continues in verse 15, look, to talk about your enemy being defeated <clears throat> and having disarmed the powers and authorities, says Paul. He made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. It's an interesting expression you've got in that verse, powers and authorities. That is Paul's way of speaking about the supernatural powers of evil in this world. These satanic authorities that try to tempt us and deceive us and accuse us. They hate the image of God seen in mankind and they're trying to twist it and to warp it. Their goal is to keep us enslaved to our sin, so that we might be destroyed. But by the cross, says Paul, 
Jesus Christ has dealt a blow to Satan which he will never recover from. Our enemy, says Paul, has been humiliated and triumphed over by the cross. It's by the cross that Jesus sets people free from Satan's power. We no longer need to dance to his tune anymore. He has no claim over us. Why is that? Well, anything that the accuser might try to accuse us of, how will we respond? Well, Jesus has paid for it. Jesus has paid for it. You're a liar. You're a thief. You are unfaithful. Yes, those things are true, sadly. But I have been washed. I have been cleansed. My debt has been paid. Jesus paid it all. You know, it's why Christians love songs like that one that Ryan chose for us. Listen to that verse that we sang. No guilt in life. That's a dream for some, isn't it? No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. So my debt is paid. That great debt of sin, accumulated sin. And secondly, my great enemy has been defeated. This is what Christ has done for us. But see also what he has done in us in those next two verses. You know, we often try to define what sin is, and we, we do so for our children. Uh, in this church, we've done it a number of times by saying that sin really is the heart within us that says to God, and we use an acronym, don't we? S, shove off God. I, I'm in charge. N, no to your rules. So it's a heart that's saying, shove off God, I'm in charge, and I'm not living by your rules. Well, that's a pretty good way of thinking about sin. Because sin is an issue of our hearts. It's interesting, uh, contrary to popular opinion, and this was even popular opinion, I believe, in Jesus' day, listen, it is not the bad things that we do that make us sinners. Rather, it's because we are sinners, because we have bad hearts, that we do bad things. As Jesus says, a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. This is how we are then by nature. We're born this way. Born, as the Bible says, as Jesus himself says, into slavery to sin. That's why we do it every day. It's why it accumulates. And because our hearts are this way, it means that we are fundamentally unwilling and therefore unable by ourselves to come to God. Unless, unless God was to reach down and do something supernatural in our hearts. This is the wonderful truth of the gospel. And that's what Paul is talking about here in verse 11. Have a look at the way he puts it, because he's now going to talk to you about circumcision. It's a very odd thing to, to bring into the topic. Look at verse 11. In him, that's in Jesus, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, 
but with the circumcision done by Christ. Now, that's a very strange picture for us to get our heads around, isn't it? But for anyone familiar with the Old Testament part of the Bible, which was the Bible of the church that that Paul was ministering to, it would be a concept they knew very, very well. Circumcision was a ritual involving minor surgery that was performed on all Jewish males to demonstrate that they were a member of God's chosen nation, his chosen people. It was a sign of identity. told people who you were. Now, of course, if you didn't live by the rules that God had given for his chosen nation, then it really counted for nothing. But the sign was there. Now, look at what Paul's saying here. He says, likewise, we, God's new people, also have a circumcision. Not just the males, but all of us. But as he says, look, in verse 11, it isn't something done by the hands of men. Rather, it is a circumcision done by Christ. And what is he talking about? Our circumcision is a circumcision of the heart, of the heart. Jesus Christ has performed an operation, surgery, on our hearts, taking away our sinful, dead heart of stone and replacing it with a new heart of flesh, a heart, then, that yearns to live a life pleasing to him and to offer our bodies, our hands, our mouths, our feet, as instruments of righteousness rather than just surrendering them in slavery to sin. And notice again the emphasis on how it is Christ who has done this. He makes a real point of it, doesn't he? Not us. It's, there were no human, no hands of man, no human hands were involved in this. It was all God. It was all Christ. He has circumcised our hearts, cut away that sinful flesh. And finally, the fourth and final point of what Jesus has done in us, resurrection. Have a look at verses 12 and 13, just quickly with me. Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. In the Old Testament, you see, under the old covenant law of Moses, all that was available then was a ritual performed by the hands of men. And so the people found, didn't they, as you read through the story, that they lacked the power to live the way that they should live to be faithful to God. It's why they went into exile. But this just foreshadowed foreshadowed a greater reality, you see. A circumcision where it was really needed, the heart. And Jesus has given his church this symbol of baptism, which we'll see in a moment, as an outward illustration, or even, I think, a proclamation of what has happened within by faith, as it says in verse 12 there. This is a picture of our salvation that we're going to see. It's a picture of the the, the circumcision of our hearts, a cutting away of our sinful flesh. 
Baptism gives us that powerful picture of death, burial, and resurrection. You see, here's the point. There's only one life that comes out of the grave, and it's the life of Christ. There's a picture here of the fact that what we once were in our guilt, in our slavery to sinful desires, is now dead. It's now dead. It's in the grave. It's dead and buried. And that what lives is, is animated, if you like, by a new life source, that of Christ himself. And this is the internal reality of what Christ has done for us. It's why Paul says elsewhere, and perhaps you know this verse, 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Now, of course, the problem is that despite all of this, this wonderful stuff that Christ has done for us and Christ has done in us, none of us lives perfect and sinless lives, do we? There's a lot of talk here of victory and of transformation. And all those things are true. But the process in which they work out in our lives can be quite a slow one sometimes. Some people illustrate this as, as like being the, like the reality of living between D-Day and VE Day. You ever heard that illustration? The war's been won on D-Day, yeah? Really, and everybody knows who the victor is. There's certainly no chance of a turnaround. There's, no, there's not going to be a comeback. But there will still be battles raging for a few more months, a period of time, until the rightful ruler comes to take power. The difference now is that the ba- in the battles, there is a new power available to us. The power of God himself. That's what Paul is saying here strengthening our hands in a conflict with sin. And we fight knowing that if we fall, it won't be a fatal fall. It will never be a fall from which there is no return. The war has been won. And so I finish with a challenge then to Ryan and to all here who profess faith in Christ. And the challenge is found actually in the earlier verses of the chapter. Take a look at them with me, verse 6 to 10. Paul says, So then, just as you received Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human traditions and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. There's way too much in there to really talk through. But look at what Paul is saying here. Verse 6, here's the charge to you. Continue the way that you started. Continue the way that you began. You started your walk with Christ by receiving him by faith. That's what you pinned your salvation on. Continue that way. Don't turn to any other source of strength. 
Rather, each day, by faith, put roots down into him. How will you do that? Well, don't neglect your Bible. Learn it. Meditate on the truths in it. Do that each day. Turn to the promises of God in the battle with sin. And learn, says Paul, look, learn, in verse 7, the, the art, the skill of thankfulness, the habit of thankfulness. Be a thankful person. Praise him. Thank God every day for what he has done for you and what he has done in you. Trust him. Trust him. And in that way, only that way, you will be able to resist being taken captive by empty thinking, says Paul. Thinking that you can or you must do things to obtain or perhaps to add to your salvation. Thinking that the power of God is too weak or the work of Christ is not complete enough to save you. Such reasoning has its source in the traditions and in the philosophies of mere men. Instead, says Paul, give Christ his rightful place in your affections, in your thinking and in your life. Look at how he finishes that little section in verses 9 to 10. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. You've been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Why would you turn to anything else? Well, we're going to hear from Ryan in just a moment, but let's pray as we close. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for Jesus our Saviour and for what he has done both in us and for us by his perfect life, death and resurrection. For united with him by faith, we, your people, have been crucified, putting to death our old sinful nature and have been raised with a new heart and a new life, the life of Christ. So strengthen us for the battle, Father, so that we might live lives worthy of our Saviour, who has called us and given himself for us. We ask all of this in his precious and most worthy name. Amen.